So I live in London and I love the architecture here. It can be weird and wonderful all at the same time. And for those of you who know me, I am a little bit obsessed with concrete and have even been known to stroke it. But I acknowledge that it can be quite a hard, cold material and so sometimes city life can feel a bit like a concrete jungle. Everything's so fixed and immovable with buildings seemingly piled on top of one another. But what if I told you that there was a different way to exist in our cities? That our workplaces and our homes could be transformed by the most surprising of materials, bringing literal life to our everyday spaces. In this episode, we look at the idea of living architecture. From algae to bacterial microbes, we hear of the innovative ways in which architectural engineering is reimagining our urban landscapes. I think that we are seeing these convergences, quite literally, of nature smart and engineering smart. And the endless potential for the futures of our cities if we open our minds to new possibilities. Nature is a much, much better designer than any of us. New conceptions of what architecture is and could be are going to emerge out of this. So join me, Roma Agrawal, as I talk with Professor of Regenerative Architecture, Rachel Armstrong, and architect and engineer, Carlo Ratti, to dream of new ways to breathe life into our buildings. Well, I'm very excited to be here with my two guests to discuss a topic that we all are very passionate about, which is buildings. So if we start off with introductions, Rachel, tell me a little bit about yourself and why you're passionate about buildings. I am Rachel Armstrong. I am a professor of regenerative architecture at Kai Leuven. And I'm really interested in buildings as a way of promoting health in the environment so that when we actually make a building, we're actually adding to the natural world rather than subtracting from it or damaging it. That's a wonderful way to think about it. Carlo, introduce yourself for us, please. Carlo Ratti, I'm a practicing architect, but also I'm professor at MIT in Boston. I'm passionate also about buildings like Rachel, but also cities. If we can do something, to make our cities a bit more sustainable. That could be a big deal globally. Agreed. Rachel, you have a very interesting background. You came into your research from a very different field. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, I started out as a medical doctor and it was when I was working in India in a leprosy colony that I saw how simple technologies could really restore people's relationship with their world. And this was really a revelation to me that somebody's whole essence could be reconfigured by how we live, not just the interventions that we were doing on the body. It was also about the extensions around the body into space that allowed people to have a social life, a family and a community. And that was amazing for me. So once that happened, I couldn't see medicine or even kind of the relationship between the body and space the same way again. And so I had to start working with artists first and then architects to try to develop a language where I could think through how bodies and the way that we live can be better connected with the natural world. Responding to what Rachel was just saying, 
you know, nature is usually self-similar. It means, you know, at different scales, you find similar things. It's very interesting. Rachel was telling us how, how to start from medicine and looking at, at leprosy and then, you know, moving into the space of cities and infrastructure. For me, the path was a bit different, more starting from, from engineering, from science, uh, from the bigger scale, but then getting more and more excited about the small scale. And some of the latest projects we've been doing really look at the microbiome in, in cities, looks at the world of bacteria, the world of humans, and how all this comes together. Now, buildings used to be something that, uh, you know, something made just of bricks and stone and so on, and so on, you know, didn't have this ability. But more and more, thanks to sensors, thanks to actuators, thanks to artificial intelligence, then buildings and cities can start to behave like, like living beings. Can I make an addition here? Because now we're designing in different ways. We're designing at different scales. We think systemically about how we design a, a building. Uh, we think biologically about the impacts of the building on us and our impacts on the building. So I would say quite a lot has changed. And I think there's a multi-scale um, difference in the way we were thinking late 20th century to how we're thinking now. This sounds like such an amazingly fascinating and huge topic. And I think today we want to focus on, I guess, the antithesis of what we think of as infrastructure and architecture. Big concrete, steel, glass infrastructure and how microbes relate to all of this. So, Rachel, could you tell our listeners what microbes are? The microbes are microscopic organisms narratives about what these organisms were and what they did have evolved. You know, in the 19th century, we understood them through the work of Pasteur as being harmful to humans, creating the conditions for disease. But we also had people who were thinking about organisms in the soils and how they were really important for agriculture. And so this tension between microbes working in the environment and microbes working in the body really created the narratives for the reign of hygiene because people's health was really suffering by the beginning of the 20th century. About one third of adults were dying from infectious disease. And so the political decision was that we went to war with microbes, which meant tipping loads of domestic poisons into our environment. And of course, you know, the environment really started to struggle with the ecological imbalance that ensued. And so towards the end of the 20th century, we're finding ourselves in a space where we're re-understanding and re-relating to these tiny organisms, which were really foundational for the production of the biosphere on Earth. I think the interesting thing for architecture is that many of these early organisms had very productive relationships with the rocks and metals, that the rocks and metals were conductors for electricity. So when we think of our smart technologies, when we think of advanced computation, the transmission of electrons as part of the biosphere is actually a foundational part of the health of the planet. And so really late 20th century, but certainly the beginning of the 21st century, we are really re-narrating our relationship with the microbes, not just in the environment, but also within ourselves as part of our health. 
It's so interesting because I often think of, you know, these nanochips, microchips being produced in a, an extraordinarily sterile environment. And actually what we're saying here is how can we harness the power of these microbes to change our technology? And Carlo, would you be able to give us a few examples, either from your own practice or from the broader fields, of how microbes can make us think about using materials in a different way? Just one example is a, is a material that's been used more and more today in, uh, in architecture is mycelium, where we're not talking about bacteria, but we're talking about fungi. Mycelium is a root of fungi. And, and actually, in, uh, with our design office, we built one of the largest ever structures in mycelium. Um, we actually had to produce a few kilometers of mycelium in order to, to create architecture. In that case, we wanted to do a test of uh, this was for an exhibition at Milan Design Week. And there we had to do this installation in a beautiful garden in the center of the city called the Orto Botanico, an 18th century garden, historical garden. And what we tried to do was actually grow the architecture and then compost it at the end of the fair. You know, one of the big problems when you do fairs or exhibitions is that, you know, you build a lot of stuff and then a lot of that goes into, into landfill. In this case, we're going to use mycelium. So basically mushroom in order to do this kind of, all these kind of structures in the middle of the garden and then grow them from the soil, and then bring them back to the soil through composting at the end. So this is just one simple example of how we can use you know, new type of materials, leveraging nature, playing with nature, not against nature. You're also working with algae in the facades with Ecologic Studio outside the Louvre in Paris. Am I wrong? Yes, yeah, so we, we, we've been working quite a bit with algae as well. Algae as well are very interesting because you, know, you can do these kind of bioreactors. So again, you use algae in order to get energy from the sun and convert that energy you know, into, again, you can do it for fuel or for food or for, for other things. And again, it becomes then, then when you're doing that, the building is this kind of hybrid system. The building becomes like a, a living organism that uses nature inside in order to do things that it couldn't achieve on its own. So could you maybe touch on some of the challenges you face in working with a couple of these different microbes? Yes, you know, if you're playing with microbes or also uh, there's many, we've got many interesting stories, you know, of how we had to find a solution for bureaucracy, for regulations, you know, but that's in general about innovation. And I think the key solution here, I think, is to do things in a similar way to what nature does again. So what nature does is try mutation, see if it works, you know, based on that, you know, that then you, you will make mistakes. You need to be ready to make mistakes, but you make them on a small scale. And then you think when things work out, then you can replicate, you can scale up. You try and you, you see the response. So I think for innovation in general, innovation in terms of materials, like we were saying, in terms of you know, playing with different scales, playing with biological material, playing with technology as well. You know, when you're trying something new within artificial intelligence or sensors or actuators, then the very important thing is really how, again, to allow for mistakes to happen, to try something, learn from it, and little by little, get to what you're trying to do. So, Rachel, I was interested in what you said in terms of a challenge about our attitude towards microbes. You know, so we saw them as a source of disease, we threw lots of bleach at them. Have we now changed our attitudes? Do we understand enough to now see them as being something positive that we can add to our cities rather than a contaminant? I think the short answer to that is not enough. And one of the things that I think microbes really point the way to is the limits that nature can support. And one of the things, obviously, that the industrial era of human development has done is trash those limits so many times over. 
For example, in our households today, certainly in Europe, we're looking at a power supply of 230 volts. And what we assume is that if we have enough energy, we can perform just about any innovation. We can solve any task from going upstairs to making your clothes straight. And nature works in a different way. It doesn't just throw energy at things. It also uses material solutions. It is creative in, let's say, being distributed about how it performs work. And so when, for example, we were developing the Living Architecture Project, which is essentially a series of uh, circular bioreactors, so anaerobic and aerobic, Um, that were linked by a membrane that produced electricity, the kinds of levels of electricity that we get out of those bioreactors is in the range of volts. And realistically, we could ramp up that voltage, that production of power, to probably around 12 volts as a basic supply through organic recycling within a household. But that doesn't get the investment because it doesn't go pound to pound as competitive with the renewables or with fossil fuels. But microbes in this sense are telling us something, which is, hang on, you should be working with 12 volts, perhaps, as the the bank of energy that you have within a household. And so it's really inviting us to think about how we do some things differently Maybe we can wash our clothes differently. Maybe we can cool our food using metamaterials rather than, you know, extracting heat by mechanical means. And so I think that we're not paying enough attention to the fact that the microbial exchanges based on living metabolisms, not borrowing energy and resource from eons gone by, are saying to us on an everyday level that we are exceeding the limits of what nature can carry in its capacity. And so I really think that it is not really just trying to match the performance of nature with that of machines. They are different things. I think what it's asking us to do is change our thinking about how we solve challenges, you know, and asks us to re-engage with the habits and assumptions underpinning how we live. And building on what Rachel was saying, it seems to me there's two very important lessons here. You know, one lesson is about um, diversity. Again, it's about the ecosystem. We need to try different things. We don't need to be stuck into just deciding this is how we do things and standardize. Nature keeps on trying. And by trying, can find actually new ways. And the other thing I heard in, uh, in what Rachel was saying is another thing we're trying to apply in a lot of the, the projects we do. And you know, we were mentioning it a little bit before when we talked about composting mycelium. Where it's about, it's a circular logic. So somehow, you know, what nature does something beautiful. You think about a, a tree, you got uh, everything is there local, including the energies captured there. You create an amazing structure. Nothing goes to waste. And so somehow that's another thing we, I think we all need to learn from. Somehow we could say that nature is a much, much better designer than, than any of us. Rachel, you mentioned earlier about how the patients that you were working with in Pune were adapting their you know, local life to make their lives a little bit better and the idea of Western-centric view of, of bodies and property and so on. And it sort of strikes me that this idea of living locally of local materials, being an artisan, is something that has existed in cultures for thousands of years all around the world. Do you have any examples of 
where we might be able to kind of go back in time and bring some lessons to our future? Like, I don't think it's so much as being uh, going back in time, but I think it is about paying attention to the wisdom that has gone before us. So things like Adobe, for example, working with you know forms of, of earth and clay where the properties of those soils actually become synonymous with our living spaces and that the circular exchanges that Carlo was just mentioning is really embedded in a relationship literally with the earth. So there's a there's a good relationship between the power and the work that is done by things living in a space and you know what you can take from a space because you're also giving back. And it's this kind of the logic of returns I think characterizes a lot of earlier forms of building because the energy that you need in order to, for example, raise a pyramid is embedded in the work of a whole civilization. And it takes its time. And it's not that we can't build a pyramid. It's just that you become very aware of the effort and the time that is invested in the moving of matter and space, and it becomes invisible as we advance towards industrial solution, mass manufacturing, and the use of fossil fuels, which cuts an awful lot of corners in terms of time and matter. So I I think that many of the embedded construction practices that predate, you know, in, in many, many different countries, those of the industrial logic actually have a much more circular relationship between land, people, and this idea of fuel or you know where our energies are placed. And those energies include the work of life, soil making, living, consuming plants, and then kind of giving back to the land in different ways. So I can see how this has worked and can work on the kind of, say, individual scale or neighbourhood scale. Carlo, can we apply this sort of thinking to city scales? Absolutely. It not only can be applied, I would say it must be applied to the city scale. And I would say the city scale because, again, there's so many things happening by many different actors. probably even an easier scale than the building scale to apply this. So the city is where you can really use the same logic, the same approach of trying many things. It's always good to remember the cities didn't exist once upon a time. You know, cities came into existence around 10,000 years ago when our ancestors found this beautiful way to bring us together so that together we can be more than each of us individually. And then since then, there have been these kind of beautiful accelerators of human thought and uh, ideas and, uh, and experiments. And so I think they are continuing to do that. And as designers, architects, we can, we can contribute to this process. How can we apply this sort of thinking on a practical level, Carlo? I'll give you a few examples of some of the projects we are doing. But before I wanted to argue is about, you know, creating hybrid systems. Again, they can have feedback loops that reproduce themselves and uh, that really blur the boundaries. Because in the past, we've been thinking about the natural and the artificial as separate. I think today we can start to look at them as, uh, as something that can converge. It, like a beginning of a co-evolution. And, and to do that, we also need to reconcile, again, you know, people who look more at the environmental side and at nature and people who look more at technology. Well, they're both trying to do the same thing, again, to try to create hybrid systems and hybrid uh, ecologies. Now, I'll, uh, I, I could tell you a lot about our projects, maybe starting from a skyscraper, we 
we designed recently, we won a competition where we, we look at the following. When you go to skyscraper, usually one of the key challenges as an architect is to minimize the amount of energy that gets inside. And then you spend a lot of money with special glass or with lamellas in order to, to keep the energy out. Otherwise, you know, you get like a green cast inside the, the skyscraper. And, um, but in this project, well, we said, you know, well, why don't we use nature in order to create that, that facade? And so we, we put a hydroponic farm in the middle between the city and the inside of the skyscraper. And then if you're doing that, you, you basically kill two birds with a stone. On the one hand, you've got, got this beautiful shading towards the inside, but also you produce a lot of food with uh, this kind of 300 meter high skyscraper. You could produce salad according to, to, to the calculations for tens of thousands of people. So somehow, again, this shows you how, you know, we can start thinking about how we can play with nature and not against it. So we've been talking a lot about how we can be more smart, I guess, about the way we build and create technology and use energy and so on. But then we've also been talking about this idea of balancing our relationship with nature, with sustainability and so on. So, so can you talk to me a little bit about what smart means for the city of the future? So Rachel, maybe if I start with you. So I would first ask you, what is smart? There's a huge amount of anthropocentrism in the idea that human intelligence is the overriding logic in the world and that human intelligence is the best kind of intelligence for solving all problems. If I go to my friends, the microbes, and think about the embodied intelligence that they have, how very situated it is, how very uh, close it is and immediate it responds to an environment, and how microbial intelligence, as it were, through their metabolisms, is able in itself to be able to increase the fertility of the world. So if we look at the legacy of microbes, they made the air, the soil, they have created the foundations for regenerative processes for all biology. There is a wisdom, whether human or not, <laughs> um, that is embedded in those microbes. And so the question for me about SMART is really which are the systems of logic or processing or knowledge that we actually need to pay attention to. And I think that is, it is important to have a human dimension of how we organize our lives and, and look after ourselves. But I think maybe the task of the 21st century is actually thinking more about different kinds of intelligences and what those intelligences can do to help us enrich how we organize our living spaces and our cities. So that requires a little bit of humility, it sounds like. Paolo, what does smart mean to you? You know, as I was saying, we study cities and a lot of people today talk about smart cities. They really don't like the word smart city. By the way, that's why our lab at MIT is called Sensible City Lab. We like the idea of a city that's able to sense, but also sensible. For me, smart means a bit too much like a, a city that becomes like a computer in open air with a lot of technology networks and so on. Having said that, so I'm not a big fan of the word of the label smart. But I, as Rachel was saying, you know, there's something profound behind what is happening today in cities. And that is, again, this kind of convergence between the natural and the artificial. Part of that is because of uh, this kind of new nervous system that's covering blanketing the built environment. It's about sensors, actuators, intelligence all coming together. And again, you're making our cities something that can respond the way that, that they couldn't just a few, a few years ago. Another way to look at this is to think about the internet. The internet changed our lives over the past 30, 40 years. 
And now the internet is becoming internet of things and it's changing our cities. It's becoming the platform by which our cities can collect a lot of data, can, can respond to the data, can respond in real time to what is happening. So even if I'm not a big fan of the world smart city, I think there's something important that's happening in our cities today. And if it played right, there's something that can make them more sustainable. And I think one of the things that these new computers can do is actually to interface with microbes. So we can actually put nature in conversation with our silicon technologies. And we're doing that with anaerobic biofilms that produce electricity as a way of directly reading the environment. So I think that, Carlo, you've mentioned kind of hybrid approaches before. I think that we are seeing these convergences, quite literally, of nature smart and engineering smart. I mean, that slightly blows my mind, Rachel. I'm trying to imagine what kind of output you're getting from these microbes and how you interpret it. We're looking at the data from microbes to help us recycle resources so we can tell about the health of a waste stream by looking at the way that the microbes are processing molecules. And we can see that as an electrical signal. And then we can introduce that electrical signal to neural networks, artificial intelligence, and start seeing patterns within that. So we are actually getting a picture through the electrical activity of the biofilms, which allows us to understand and read the processes within the bioreactor. So in some ways, we're looking at the intelligence of environmental care. Carlo, Rachel's just used the word artificial intelligence. Are you using AI in your work and what's the role of it in the future? Yes, I would say, you know, AI is used a lot in thinking about cities or buildings. First of all, when you conceive a building, but also when you operate it, it becomes this kind of artificial brain that helps the building, as we were saying a moment ago, behave like a living thing. I'll give you a couple of examples. In terms of the design side, we're using a lot of AI to better understand the urban context. For instance, today you can use deep learning, a form of AI, in order to analyze millions of images from the city. And then those images tell you a lot about, uh, about the city itself and how it behaves. By the way, this is something that dates back to the early 19th century, to um, uh, a lot of work done in the 20th century by great researchers such as Kevin Lynch or Alan Jacobs or William White. But today we can do it on a massive scale. And again, look at the city in order to understand a lot of the, about the urban environment and use that knowledge into new designs. So that's an example of how we can use AI in the design phase. There's a lot of other use of AI, as I was saying, when the building operates. And again, if, by the way, something important to remember is uh, there's no AI unless you've got data. So if you receive a lot of data from the building through sensors, so the building knows a lot about all the outside conditions and the inside conditions, then AI can help you to optimize this building. For different reasons. It could be about saving energy. It could be about having a more pleasant environment for people. It could be about health. If you've got data and if you've got intelligence, then the building, as we were saying, becomes like something dynamic. Rachel, what does the future of the city look like to you? For me, this future of the city really looks something more like the processes that are within soils in the sense that there is a fundamental circularity, that we do away with this idea of waste, that the structuring of our material processes is life-bearing, and that essentially the presence of humans within those landscapes is a net beneficial one. 
those are kind of broad principles. And I really think that the insights that we've got from biotechnology and the, let's say, the relationships even between rocks and life and foundational aspects of how living things circularly process the world are, are really providing a portfolio for young architects and engineers that really, I'm hoping, will set their imaginations alight and that new conceptions of what architecture is and could be are going to emerge out of this. So I think there'll be stuff that will be very similar because there's a certain aspect of us living together that stays the same, but there'll be other things that are that are very different. Maybe our buildings will be softer, flatter, more nested in the earth. Carlo, could you tell me maybe on a smaller scale, like what my house might look like? So if I'm describing that, you know, I live in a house that's made from brick and concrete block, it's on a street, you know, I've got some space, I've got a garden behind me. I do have a compost heap, I have an irrigation system, but I'm using radiators. You know, what might my house look like in the future that you're envisioning? Yeah, well, I'm um, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Know, I think you know, your house will not look that different tomorrow. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> no, think about the following. You know, if uh, you we're still living in many parts of the world, we're still living in homes built 100, 500, even 2,000 years ago. You know, old Roman homes are still being used for living in today. So I would say the physical appearance will probably not change that much. As humans, we need horizontal floors for living. We need facades to protect us from, from the outside and from the environment. We need windows to look outside. Uh, so all those elements will still be there. But life in your house will be very different. And, you know, think about how much things change. Just for about past five or six years from before COVID to now, how we're using our homes for doing many different activities, how we're using technologies in different ways, how our bedrooms and, uh, and kitchen tables have become our offices in different ways. So I think... What will change a lot is not necessarily the hardware of the house, but the software. So your life inside it. Thank you so much. That's been such a fascinating discussion, taking us from the city scale, the planet scale, right down to microbes. So thank you, Rachel and Carlo, for joining me today. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was hosted by me, Roma Agrawal, and featured Rachel Armstrong and Carlo Ratti. It was produced by Tess Davidson. Look out for our next episode on the deep sea in a fortnight. 